0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Venable Children is
1: in, I think, Taiwan right now. uh, We're going to start a series of reviews on the book Approaching the Buddhist Path with this beautiful cover. Actually, we did one, last one we did, ended on page 11, so that's where we're going to pick up uh, tonight. So we'll start by setting our motivation together. So, what I've been sitting here thinking about is one example that I've learned from venerable children, at least I've witnessed, and I'm trying to learn, is just the power of purification. When we make mistakes, even if we make a series of mistakes, and our minds are uncontrolled or overwhelmed, whatever it may be, it doesn't really matter what it is. We just keep working to purify and work our way out of these situations. And whether they're like a one off thing that just is momentary or something where you've entrenched yourself a little bit more, the same principle applies of not to hold on to the past and not to reify the experience or any aspects of it, to do the purification practice and really also include the part in the practice where you think about the emptiness of the agent, the object and the action try to loosen the screws of these thoughts and habits, whatever it is that we're creating our own suffering with. And what I've really seen in her example is her ability to psychologically unburden these things and move on. And I think that's just so important to learn how to do. And I think it probably for myself seems to have layers, layers of lessons that come for similar issues. But I'm rejoicing that we have these practices as just one of many that can help us to work with our minds, try to work with and reduce and eliminate our afflictions, try to really learn what it means to have loving-kindness towards another person. That's probably a little more rare in my experience than I would like to admit. So, if we can really keep seeing through the disadvantages of having so much self-preoccupation And really see the advantages of caring for others and cherishing others and having them in our purview, getting outside of ourselves to do that. So may we put our mind in that direction, bringing to mind this beautiful aspiration of bodhicitta and let that lighten our, make a light for our path, lighten our hearts, and support us. One time His Holiness was teaching in Arizona many years ago, and I listened to these audio, he was teaching on Shantideva. At one point he said that bodhicitta is your best friend. We all need friends. So this is a friend that we need to get to know. So we're starting up on page 11, and this is a section in this book called Religion in the Modern World. And when Venerable Children spoke about this, actually this is a section of this book that I think she's spoken of a few times because it was, um, even before the book was this book was released, this section was published as an editorial, I think, of the New York Times. And it had these... It listed these three challenges to religion in general, one being communism, the second one being modern science. And she noted that those first two had actually changed a lot since His Holiness had given that teaching that things in Russia had changed, the scope of communism in the world had changed, And that actually even modern science had changed it during the you know intervening years from the time he gave that talk. and and now, in that there's more uh, recognition of contemplative sciences in in modern science. But the third challenge to religion was materialism and consumerism, and that remains a problem. And she also mentioned that she would add fundamentalism to this list. So this is where we're starting tonight with these teachings on religion in the modern world. Um, But I wanted to do this in a slightly different way, where we actually... The teachings that we'll go over tonight, we're going to do more in the way of contemplation and, uh, and discussion both. So if you're online, have your chat box ready, <laughs> and you might even want a pencil to jot down some notes. Um, this material won't be so new to any of us, but uh, so I thought it was a good time to contemplate the material. And I've, I didn't get very far with it, not really it didn't go through very many pages because there was just so much there and it's what I've been focusing on in my practice that happened to, you know, the um, just happened to occur at the same time. So. so starting on page 11, shes I'm just picking out selections from different pages for us to focus on. But there's this a couple paragraphs where he's, His Holiness is saying, once we adopt a religion, we should practice it sincerely. And if we truly believe in Buddha, God, Allah, Shiva, and so forth, we should become honest human beings. Some people claim to have faith in their religion, but act counter to its ethical injunctions. They pray for the success of their dishonest and corrupt actions, asking God, Buddha, and so forth to help them in covering up their wrongdoings. And people like that should give up saying they're religious. Um, I found that uh, I don't know much about wh- what he's pointing to when he talks about uh, people asking God to cover up their their wrongdoings. But um, I thought of it more in terms of myself. How my question to myself was like, how do we use Buddhism sometimes to in a wrong way I think that was the question I wanted to ask myself more like I think one time years ago uh, I didn't even know it myself but I was trying to change something in the schedule here it had changed and I wasn't so ready for the change this was many years ago there were only three of us living here then I think or so and um I was had written Venerable Children something about it, and she first kind of bought into it. And then before it went too far, she just realized, no, I think this is Tarpa's self-centered thought taking over here. And she just found a really nice words to couch it in, you know. And I she kind of pulled the bluff that I didn't even know I was doing, to tell you the truth. So me for me, that was like an example of this, how we we do this. And sometimes we don't even know we're doing it, but sometimes we might. You know, we can kind of make things look good. He goes on to say, our world now faces an ethical crisis related to a lack of respect for spiritual principles and ethical values. That couldn't be more timely, I think, when we think about a lot of the things that we see in the news. And then he goes on to say that these can't be forced on society by legislation or by science, and ethical conduct based on fear doesn't work. We have to think and have conviction in the worth of ethical principles so that we want to live ethically. And I think that this is really the only thing that makes sense in the long term. It's kind of like parenting, you know, um, or even training a dog. You know, you can, you can beat a dog into submission. but And you can actually punish children to be submissive, in the short term, but a lot of times those things don't work in the long term, and what's more effective is to have a kind of to help a person to develop from within in order to want to live ethically so um, put yourself in a meditative position now and lower your eyes and we 're going to do a guided meditation, and then we 'll um, discuss this afterwards so these are some things to think about. And just see what comes up for you. Um, If you need to jot down notes, that's okay. But just make that so, so brief. Because mostly you want to contemplate and just pay attention to what, just what comes up. It could be anything. Don't censor yourself. There's no need to speak tonight. It would be helpful. But there's no need. Just mostly when you're doing this contemplation, let your mind be free. And just see what's there. So first just ask yourself why live ethically? Why? What's the point? What's the benefit? What kind of thoughts come up to you? And what kind of experiences are coming to your mind when you think about this? What does it mean to live ethically? When you think about living ethically, how have your thoughts about that changed over the years? Look back over your life. What were your thoughts about this? How has your Buddhist practice influenced your thinking in this regard? Have you ever found yourself using your Buddhist practice to cover up your wrongdoings? so if anyone uh, writes anything online, just let me know and we'll add that in. Um, did, did anyone have any thoughts about these? I can ask some of the questions again, you can see if you had any thoughts. Did anything come up that you would wish to share just about why live ethically, like what's the point? What's the benefit?
0: When I think of living ethically, I think of not harming others. And not only would that be my definition of it, but also the point of it of not harming myself or others. Mm-hmm. And um, how that's changed over the years is who I'm concerned about harming, being a lot more inclusive rather than, you know, help your friends and harm your enemies, and um, what I consider harmful. I used to kill a lot of fish, mosquitoes, hunt deer. Yeah. And also cultivate bad thoughts about people I didn't like, even if I didn't have direct contact with them, like harming them.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. (gasps) I'll say something and then we'll go to the person online. It was funny to me, what came up for the first question was like what kind of like the benefit of living ethically and loud and clear came up, like peace of mind. It's just so disturbing to my mind when I'm falling away from ethics. And my thoughts have changed so much over the years. I was thinking about when I was a child, I was raised Catholic, and I... um, So I was thinking like when I was under 10, it was all kind of like the stick and the carrot a little bit. There was one part of the faith that, you know, showed us what you could, you know, what a good person you could be. And then there was the other part that was kind of like, stay out of trouble. But even within that, I, I still came out of that with this thing of if you don't get caught, it doesn't matter. You know, the main thing was not to get caught, which... It's quite different from now and over the years, seeing how much that changed from the time I was a child. And, and I was thinking how, what you were saying, like how Buddhism really refines ethics. I mean, just like the thing about stealing was one thing, but taking what's not freely offered is a much more subtle level of that and then i was thinking wow it even goes to these three kind of vows that we might end up having if we're in like tibetan buddhism where we'd have our pratimosha monastic or lay uh, refuge vows and then maybe some people have taken bodhisattva vows and other people take tantric vows and these are all ethical codes so it gets more and more refined of the body speech and mind so the people in It doesn't, feel like it, doesn't say, it sound like that mic is working. Is it working okay? Okay. I think it's just we don't have that other speaker going. Okay. It's working good.
2: Uh, some people have said to avoid regret. Mm-hmm. And also it brings a lot of peace, peace in their mind. Yeah. So no regret, you know, just... Yeah, Yeah. and somebody asked, is there an example for using the Dharma practice to hide one's wrongdoing? An example? Yeah, do you have an example? Oh,
1: well, actually, what I was thinking, I gave one example about how I had done that, maybe not so knowingly, because I was couching this request in these dharmic concerns, (laughs) You know, like I could make it sound like I had some Dharma goals as to why I wanted to do something, but it was more, uh, it it was really more self-centered thought, directing the show. That's what I learned in that example. But maybe something that would be more um, direct, like um, if someone had some kind of activity they did and they somehow rationalized it by using the Dharma. You know, like, I don't know, like, I'm trying to think of what would be an example. Like, I, I couldn't quite relate to what His Holiness said when He said uh, they pray for the success of their dishonest and corrupt actions. You know, I was trying to think of, like, I wonder what He had seen where people had done that. And and I I didn't really have examples that I know about Um, But I guess one thing that you could say that's in the news of late is if the sexual misconduct that's happened in the Buddhist world, some of that would fit right up this alley. If if the person in their mind was thinking that, um, was saying that, you know, I can can, uh, do this because I'm powerful or because it has something to do with the teachings when actually they're just doing some unethical behavior— you know, I think there's a lot of confusion in um, in uh, just the general understanding of how consort practice would be used. I mean, just to give an example, I mean, you'd have to be a pretty uh, advanced practitioner and there weren't very many even in Tibet at the time of the 13th Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. So all the kind of things we see about that, I think, are kind of a really glaring example of this. And, you know, to hide something, I mean, what's more publicly known is the problems that have have happened in the Catholic Church. But for me personally, for any religion, to say that it's more important for the church or the Buddhist uh, center or whatever to sustain, sustain itself than it is to um treat people ethically especially children or people who are disadvantaged that just to me that's that's just an example of calling it one thing but it being another actually
3: an example would be um the buddhist in Myanmar right now that are saying you know we want the Rohingyas out. It's part of our practice, and they're using it as part of their practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good example. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. I'll go back to the ethical one. Um, one of the things I always thought when I'm trying to make a decision, one of the sayings I always use is, "Whenever you do, the, always do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. hmm That's what ethics is, to me is, you know.
1: hmm Yeah. Yeah, so those are some examples. So, one of His Holiness's conclusion, each of these meditations I try to think of a conclusion, and most of the times His Holiness has written them in the paragraph. He's saying, rather than have this ethics put on us from the outside, by science, by law, by society, whatever, which, of course, there is some of that, we actually have to have the conviction of the worth of this, the benefit of it, from inside in order to want to live ethically. So then we go on to later on the same page. Uh, His Holiness talked about in India in India where he lives now, it's been the home of ideas of secularism, which is a separation of church and state essentially, or yeah, one way to look at it. Inclusiveness and diversity for 3,000 years But at the same time, with all of that, there's always been a lot of respect for different philosophical schools, and he gives some examples of that. Then he says, in the same way, we must respect those of other religions as well as non-believers. And he promotes this kind of secularism, this idea in secular society, or maybe it's what he calls secular ethics, that the essence of which is to be a kind person who does not harm others. Whether you're religious or not, that's his basic thing. His My religion is kindness, he always says. So I just wanted us, we're not going to so much meditate on this first part, but I wanted us to think about how we deal with difference when we find others are different from ourselves. Because this happens like all the time. We, we might have differences of our values or our religion or our political ideas or cultural norms. I mean, we live here with people from... Different countries, and we have different ways of we we're raised in really different kind of families. We have different sense of personal space and different sense of communication styles. There's so many ways where we differ from others. Um, and then His Holiness, uh, oh, actually it was my idea here that these differences we have differences within families, within societies, within a nation, and between nations. But he's asking all of us to be kind no matter what to anyone to everyone. So I I was thinking, you know, really to deal with the differences we have for others is really crucial for this. How can we how can we get along with others and be kind and even think positively of others and be so we can be kind to them if we can't deal with the differences. So We'll just do this one, um, not so much as a meditation, but I'd like you just to think about these and for a moment. How think about what it takes for you to be open to another person who's different from you. Like what? Come. What do you have to do inside? Look at the qualities that you have to have and kind of hindrances that get in the way of that. Think about one specific thing you could do that you could work on or cultivate within yourself to help to grow in this regard. So I'll start first and then we'll see if other people have thoughts about this. The thing that comes up for me in terms of differences with people the first basic thing to me is having respect for another person. If I don't have if I if I'm not if I'm lacking in respect for another person then I'm not going to get anywhere. I, I think it's so important to be able to, like, to dialogue and to listen and to hear what other people have to say. But if I don't have respect for them, it's pretty hard to make your mind do that. You, you are know, uh, yeah. So, the, I want to go to the hindrance first. The thing that I think actually doesn't serve in this is to have kind of rigid opinions and what does serve a lot is is to be able to listen well and that the thing those are the two things I would I would I work on I'm not doing very well with the second I, I started to think about trying to do actually reflective listening with others and I'm not really habituated to that at all the kind of listening I do is I do listen to others, but it's not one where I reflect back what people say, and that's something I wanted to to work on and I think I think would be helpful because because it's hard enough to communicate with others if you if I was to have that more on board, then it would be clear that there's a common understanding of what we were talking about because a lot of times communication kind of is like two ships passing in the night, and it's not clear to each other what the other person is saying. So I think to have more of a habit, you know, to try to cultivate the skill. I don't even think of it as a habit. I'm just trying to get to the place of thinking of it and making some kind of skill in that. I think that would be helpful. Uh, did any, if anyone writes in, just let me know. But did anyone else have any thoughts about this one, about how you might work with differences? Basically, just remember
3: that they are sentient beings, just like me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter whether they're white, black, red, will, handicapped, male, female. Everybody is ascension being or, or human being in this case, just like me.
4: Oh yeah, you covered it pretty well, but also um, I wanted to add um, that yeah. For example, when I first met my f- first when I had my first encounter with a disabled person, via my brother, um, so I. I slowed down because it was very unusual for me to meet somebody who was disabled or other-abled. And um, I slowed down and I um, uh, stopped myself and um, kind of tried to switch a little bit my perspective. Mm -hmm. And um, and then recognizing that, yeah, this person has feelings too, just like me, and uh, has a wish to be happy so to say, and, and really, um, especially when I saw this person, you know, seeing it in um, joyful moments when he had a good encounter with somebody, a joke or something mm-hmm. like that, he could recognize. So to see, yes, it's a sentient being, it's essential, I think uh, mm. wants to be happy and not suffer.
1: That reminds me of uh, years ago when I was in physical therapy school. We had to spend 24 hours using a wheelchair, because we were going to work with people who were disabled, and <laughs> on that day, I had gone from my, where I lived right off campus, tried to go up this hill to the, which was blocks away to this post office, and then I had to try to get that thing in a car and go to Olympia to the house I lived in on the weekends <laughs> with a door with no ramps no door that could fit through it was just a mess it was so much work i couldn't believe it but what i remember from that and also from the education i got there was it was a combination of learning about what people who are disabled actually are facing what they're kind of what they're dealing with medically i learned a lot about that in physical therapy school especially people with spinal cord injuries or just a lot of people who are wheelchair-bound, I got it more. And I had so much, just the understanding, um, both from the education and from that experience, it gave me, like, I found that right after that, when I saw somebody in a wheelchair, I was able to look them in the eye and, and like, communicate with them and interact. Whereas before that, I was I was quite reticent, and I, I realized it was like, there was probably a fear of the unknown on my side. I didn't know anything about what they were dealing with. And, and that was quite, there, there's a level of complete difference, but it, for me, education helped me a lot.
2: Somebody said, what it helps me is having curiosity. Mm. Another person says, I'm not always right. I'm learning to consider other people's opinion and be willing to change mine. Mm-hmm. That's good. Another person says, my mind wants to say how I experience the world is the right way. If others have different pers- perspective, it makes sense from their side due to their condition. And I need to understand that. Mm. Yeah. It's like putting ourselves in the shoes of others. Or another person. Yeah. yeah. And for me, it's pushing the pause button on judgment. Mm. So stop the judgment yeah, those factory. Those are all really, really good ideas. Thank
1: you. Good. Okay, we're going to go. We're getting to the next page. Oh, I guess we were there. So this there's, there's a little section here where Solanus talks about modern science. Modern science. Um. And he says, up until now, modern science has confined itself to studying phenomena that are material in nature. Because scientists by and large examine only things that can be measured with scientific instruments, this limits the scope of their investigations and consequently their understanding of the universe. Phenomena such as rebirth and the existence of mind as a phenomena separate from the brain are beyond the scope of scientific investigation. Although they have no proof that these things do not exist, some scientists assume that they do not exist, consider these topics as unworthy of consideration. And so... One thing on here uh, that was interesting to me was what Venerable Children said about this. She was talking about how in, uh, she was talking about Vasubandhu's teachings on ethics, don't agree with our modern sensibilities, and, his, and was mentioning that His Holiness has to teach these texts, like by Vasubandhu, in a, as they're taught, because he's a lineage holder. So she was saying, personally, he can support various and probably different positions, but he has to teach this text as it's written to the Tibetan community and stay with the textual tradition. And she was talking about how it was easier for her, and also Alex Berzin as well, to adjust um, the views to fit a more contemporary context. And there I think she's one thing she's talking about in particular is there's a lot of things that Vasubandhu wrote about what is sexual misconduct. And, and Venerable actually kind of has modernized those, modernized those to our time and culture. And so I know for a fact that that's one area where she's done that. Um, but my thought about this, I wondered what people, if people found any areas where science informed your Dharma practice Anything you can think about or influenced it or where you find conflict?
4: I think um, when I first heard um, about the um, scientific studies about the effect on of meditation um, uh, on your mind, on your emotions, on your physical body, um, that helped me um, to... Get some encouragement too. In addition, when I mm, maybe had a um, low motivation in general, mm-hmm. maybe things got a little bit difficult or so, then so scientific researchers helped me, for example, um, yeah, um, that for example, um, when you have had. Um, very difficult life experiences, traumas. They have uh, now very clear measurements that the um, practice of loving kindness, for example, can participate to heal those traumas, mm-hmm. and they have that measured in the brain. Um, mm-hmm. There are certain regions that are active, and so and they have also have enough case studies
1: now that prove that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I have the same experience with some of these things where I find that mm, I, I don't see a lot of difference in my own thinking sometimes about how Buddhism works and how science works and psychology works in certain ways, um, I guess because I think both of them are investigating and trying to do that with an open mind. I'm not saying it always happens that way in either, but there's a, some basic principles that seem similar to me. And so if, and I'm not sure sometimes if I agree with this point about that phenomena certain phenomena are the existence of mind separate from the brain. I don't know if I think that, can't be worked. Some of this can't be worked out, even in science. I'm not so. I'm not sure about that. I, I get the. I get the point that scientific instruments can only look at matter, but to me, I'm not so. There's the when I was tr- training a lot in sciences, there was a bigger separation between hard sciences and soft sciences. What they called it back then, and I think actually that a lot of the. um different kinds of analysis that you can do with statistics and science around psychology don't seem so soft to me. Like it used to be when I was in college studying these things in the 70s mostly, um, the hard sciences were like physics and things that involved a lot of math and da-da-da-da-da. And the social sciences were seen as really soft and not so... For real, actually. You know, it just, that was the attitude. And I, I kind of, you know, I actually think, I mean, my basic thought is that it really, it comes down to being able to ask the right questions and design and experiment well. And I think that's what His Holiness has been able to do by getting involved with scientists, which is partly why I got interested in Buddhism, because I, I actually felt like Buddhism had the best understanding of the mind. And that neuro, you know, like psychology and a lot of those things were kind of in the dark ages, and especially the maybe neurophysiological stuff. But that was a long time ago. And now there's been a lot of cross fertilization between the two. And so to me, it's a matter of coming up with really innovative experiments like a, like so much of the stuff they do like with advertising and our social behaviors you know the social sciences on that i mean they've got that down to a to a science you know they they really know how to get stuff to sell and you know they really know how to get ads to work and things like that and a lot of that is based on social science and is quite effective so you know to me it's a matter of how we're using some of these tools yeah, and there may be something where Certainly, you know, you, an instrument can't see anything but matter, maybe. I don't know how they deal with energy then, but whatever. You know what I'm saying. But I, I still think there's a lot of room for um, for a lot to be learned with the combination of the two. And I personally find that some of the principles I learned in science, which I had more strongly ingrained in me, have helped me in Buddhism they helped me to realize uh, what we might now call the inference through the power of belief, where you're relying on a reliable, um, reliable testimony or whatever it is. I think that's the term, the text, reliable text, and whatever. It's like um, that's how I convinced myself when I've been working with things like rebirth and things like that, I realized that I had studied the muscle contraction theory at length. I had to, I got tested on that so many times during my college years because I was in different programs where it came up again and again and again. I'd never seen the inside of a muscle with a microscope and never seen what happened with the molecules, but I had complete confidence in this theory because I had studied it so many times and worked with people who had all different kinds of muscle problems, from being spastic muscles to, spas- to spasm muscles to people with CP to people with strokes and whatever it was, and paralyzed. And, it, you know, it all the whole theory fit with everything I had seen, too. So I had, like, complete belief in that theory. And I'd never seen a thing. And I remember thinking when I was working on trying to understand, like, rebirth – and karma that you know wow I that same I don't have to see something with my own eyes to have a to have this complete belief in it, and that helped me a lot because I had done it in a science thing and I realized oh I can transfer that to something else go ahead so
3: I've always been interested in science, so when you uh, His Holiness comes out with a book like um, "The Universe in a Single Atom" or "A Quantum and the Lotus." Those just fascinate me because they they say everything is in motion in physics, and they get down to what they call the string theory, and it's still everything is in motion, which totally fits in with emptiness
1: because things are yeah. c- c- never can get pinned down. <laughs> yeah, and
3: and they look at things like time. And Arya Deva did that, you know, 1,200 years ago. Yeah. So it's that's where it fits in for me. Yeah.
1: Anything online on that one?
2: Somebody write, quantum physics is discovering the observer effect. The observer effect is the theory that simply observing a situation – or phenomenon, necessarily change that phenomenon dependent origination. Yeah. So,
1: okay, then we're gonna go on to, so now they've had us, we didn't have any ways where it got in the way. Anybody have any, did anyone have any experiences where science got in the way? with regard to ethics, in the sense of using animals (laughs) or cloning. Yeah, there's a lot of things that, yeah, that can happen that could be unethical, that's for sure. Mm, But in my personal practice, I don't... Yeah, I've only witnessed this. Um, It's actually... um, Some people are... unless. Unless it happens in science first, they won't accept something in Buddhism until it's been proven scientifically. I've seen that in a few people, and I've actually seen it where, yeah, it seemed to me sometimes it hindered their ability to sink into the Buddhist teachings as they were taught by Buddhists, because by always comparing it, I don't know, to me, this is just my own take, that for me it would cause a bit of a hindrance. Why? Only it might be a matter of time, the amount of time it would take to penetrate the teachings. Like, to penetrate Tsongkhapa's teachings takes time. And the time it would take to study all the scientific stuff, like for me, that's the issue of how much time I have. And then the other is, is how open can you keep your mind if you have a certain belief, say in the stuff around physics is where I've seen this come up with people the most, when we start talking about partless particles and all this and that, and then you've got people who have studied, you know, the physics to certain levels. Sometimes I've, if you have a certain belief from physics that doesn't agree with the, the Buddhist one, sometimes I, I don't, I don't know, two things I've seen happen. One where you, your mind is so steeped in one, you actually aren't understanding the other one in its own context. And that can kind of get in the way of actually understanding the view. And the other is, is just not being able to keep your mind open enough because you're already solid in one thing. I've seen that come up a few times. It's actually led me to not put so much effort into the... I mean, I, I like science, but I had so much of it, I just feel like I want to understand Kappa, and so that's where I'm putting my, my time. But that's just me. Okay, then we'll move on. There's a whole, uh, another, takes a shift in the book now, kind of looked at the ways that we think about, how we think about things, and, you know, actually there's something that, I think I deleted something here. Yeah, I did. Oh, well. That's all right. Uh, there's a section here that talks about religion stresses inner satisfaction, saying that happiness results from a peaceful mind, Well, materialism tells us that happiness comes from external objects. So now they're setting up this thing about where where does happiness come from? Does it come from the outside or from the inside? Religious values such as kindness, generosity, and honesty get lost in the rush to make more money and have more and better possessions. As a result, many people's minds are confused about what happiness is and how to create the causes for happiness. So... Uh, we're going to take a time now to do another um, guided meditation. So, once again, go get in your meditation posture. And just ask yourself these questions about your own life experience. Have you found any lasting satisfaction in any material object? Have you found any satisfaction in any external situation?" Which seems more plausible to you? Inner satisfaction or satisfaction dependent on external factors? Any takers for material objects? (laughs) Anyone find anything that gave them lasting satisfaction? Any external situations that gave you lasting satisfaction? Anyone got anything online? I think it's pretty, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) It's like the the easy question of the night. (laughs)
4: I uh, just was thinking, um uh there is of course no last satisfaction, but let's say um you have the Lam Shemo books, you know, and as long as you haven't internalized the teachings uh, of of Ram Shemmo, um there's still some kind of grasping to these books, books. um. I would hold on to them very tightly, because mm-hmm. I know this is my savior to liberation, I'm part of it, you know. <laughs> and the other thing is, um situation could be, for example, teachings receiving from Dharma teachers who are reliable, you know, like Soliness and Vanuaschutran, and um, as long as I haven't internalized yet the teachings, I will hold on to it.
1: <laughs> yeah.
4: It's not, per se, it's not the same clasping as I would clasp yeah. um, to relationships, to buildings, or those kind of things. But still, yeah. I'm hanging on to something external.
1: Yeah, probably. But I think if we have a... Uh, when you're thrown over off the boat, you need a life raft. <laughs> you know? we need We need the support. Actually, one time, Venerable Chodron asked her, asked tech Tekcho, okay. how long do you need a teacher, essentially is what it came down to. And he said, till you reach Buddhahood. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, yeah, we have to... We, attachment gets in the way of everything, is what that says to me. It's, it's, But, you know... I think venerable has got it right. When we get to the place where we can start working on attachment, that time will come and we'll work on it. And before then, we have to work on the bigger things that are in our way. And then there's going to be levels, even once you're working on attachment, I think, of like the grossness or the subtlety of what you're working on. I mean... Although they start as early not to get attached to meditative states, you know like that would that's a lot more subtle th- thing for most people to get attached to than sex, <laughs> ice cream, Disneyland <laughs> for some, <laughs> okay, I'm gonna keep going here a little bit, okay. yeah, sure, please. It's too bad that we think this but we haven't we don't always actualize this last point It's easier said than done easy to understand hard to live
0: sometimes with the question of which seems more plausible um, inner or satisfaction or satisfaction dependent externally um, I would have to say that I think that satisfaction is probably an internal mental factor, mm-hmm. so either way it's going to be an internal thing if you there's a saying that there's much satisfaction for those who are easily satisfied. or there's much contentment, sorry. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's the same difference here. If there's much contentment for those that are easily content, and um, and then you're going to be satisfied with what you have and not mm-hmm. be grasping at something else.
1: So you're saying that a person could have permanent satisfaction from external things as long as they could keep their mind satisfied with d- those external things or with the inner satisfaction? Which one would it I be? I think it's
0: the inner satisfaction even then. That's what I'm saying. Right. I think that it's, it's that having cultivated that inner quality that one can be satisfied with what you have externally and not always wanting more.
1: Right. And it's kind of like answering the question the same way from two different perspectives.
0: Yeah. So basically, I'm saying inner though.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. I think that um, that for people like us who meditate and think about these things, that makes a lot of sense. But if you were somebody who was um, n- didn't have experience with any of this, this would be might surprise you a little bit. Might surprise somebody to look at their own experience and. See I mean don't you think it 's a little funny that we can 't find anything? I think if you'd asked me this question when I was fifteen years old or so it would have been pretty different you know I would, I would have had a very different answer i wouldn't have any i wouldn't have the perspective I have now, so I agree with what you 're saying i I agree with it, and I also think that if this if we had a realization of this like no one can find anything no one in this room and no one online could find anything that gave him lasting satisfaction externally but look at how we live <laughs> so it's like a disconnect so yeah so we have to keep asking ourselves that question so that we can in the moment detach We have to remember this in the throes. I mean, I think we should ask ourselves this question uh, when there's something that we are craving for. Recently, I've had difficulty in my mind with craving. And this question would be hard for me to answer when that state of mind is quite strong. I would probably go for... (laughs) I'd probably find an answer that didn't make any sense. It wouldn't hold. So our perspective can be quite colored. Talks to my confusion. Okay, so now the last part of this, uh, sec- we go to a new section in the book called A Broad Perspective. And this is, I think, um, something that I certainly didn't have the notion of when I when I got interested in Buddhism. His Holiness says that Dharma practice is not comprised of simply one meditation technique. Our minds are far too complex for one meditation technique or one Dharma topic to transform every aspect of our minds. Although some newcomers to the Dharma may want one single technique to practice and may see progress by sticking to it, they should not think that in the long term this is sufficient to generate all the realizations of the path. I'm sure I had this notion, because there weren't many books about Buddhism when I first got interested in it. I remember I started meditating as a teenager. I didn't know even what meditation was for decades. <laughs> and and But I knew I was interested in it. And it was a long time before I had any idea of what... <laughs> meditation meant like it was a long time before I knew you had to have an object that was you know like having proper instruction or anything came decades later for me and luckily some of the first books I did read were, were excellent books and I didn't get misled too much but I still had the notion like I know like I was thinking about this when I was a kid I was a Catholic till I was 15 so I was always kind of a, had a young mind when I was a Catholic. I, I was a child, essentially, for most of that time. And my views about religion were really simplistic. I started off as a child with just, you know, be good and go to heaven, right? So the religious path was kind of simple, you know. And then uh, when I first came to Buddhism more seriously, though, even even when I lived, before I lived here, I might have thought, yeah, when I first started to kind of study Buddhism, I might have had the idea, meditate and reach nirvana. And it was going to be like kind of simple, not not a problem, not too hard kind of thing. It just the, the, the idea of a of having so many aspects to my mind and needing to learn all these topics and learn all this stuff was the farthest thing from what I thought. And even when I moved here, I remember when we were studying emptiness, I was like, I thought... Originally, so I moved here in 2005. So somewhere in those first years, I was sorting out, oh, when you realize emptiness, you're not done. And that emptiness doesn't just come on you like, boing, like that. It's going to be a gradual thing, you know, where you start to get the correct assumption and get the inference and then a direct perception. And and then once you have that realization, now I always like to say you've got the scouring pad and now you've got to clean up. All your afflictions and the, their latencies. So even even when I had you know like was starting to learn Buddhism more seriously, I still had this notion that was, I think, kind of simplistic. So and His Holiness is saying our minds are far too complex for one meditation te- technique or one dharma topic to transform every aspect of our minds which I think just is so helpful to have that notion. What Venerable Children says is that our mind is very complex, so we need more than one technique and one Dharma teaching. But she says then, out of that, emphasize what's helpful at this moment. And what's helpful at this moment will change, but that's what you should be emphasizing right now. And then keep your commitments, which is just a practical thing for anyone who's taking commitments. So, really, the Dharma has a, is a whole worldview, and it examines pretty much all the aspects of our life, is what His Holiness is going on to say here. And so, that's going to then bring up all the things that we run into, all these different kinds of things that are new and challenge us, and we have to remain open-minded and curious and investigate and observe our mind, investigate the ideas and observe our mind. Then we have, so we have to take these teachings, use our reasoning, and apply them to our lives. See if they describe our experience. And then, as we always know, that the Buddha advises us not to accept these teachings just because he taught them, that we have, to, we have to examine them. But also the other side of the coin of that, the other side of the coin is that don't reject them just because something is foreign to you or it doesn't, it, you know, match your current idea, you shouldn't reject the teachings either. This is actually a really important point um, that I wanted to dwell on a little bit from what His Holiness said here. Um, his whole, Ven- Venable Chodanoi says, if there's things that don't make sense to you, kind of put them on the back burner. And uh, Dhammakusha's uncle, Deishon Rinpoche, Really impressed me when he talked about this in the one text that he that that he uh, is written uh, of his, and he talked about how he realized that he never in his life had rejected one of the Buddhist teachings, and how important that was. I think of it as um, as in this way. I know I'm deluded. I have no doubt about that. I have delusions. And so I think of this as not setting up roadblocks for, for myself in the future. Because if I, if, I, if I reject a teaching
0: that I don't understand,
1: and I, I, I would be doing it primarily because I don't understand it, it's better to put it on the back burner, as Venerable Children says, and then when I'm less deluded, then I'll bring it out again and hopefully be able to s- understand it more clearly. And that way I haven't set up any roadblocks, in the future, because I, I, think, I think it would be like that for me. It would be like, now I've got to break through something that I held firmly that doesn't, wasn't correct. It seems that way, you know, in, in the rest of my life. you know, Once I've got an idea about something, it's a little harder to break it down than it is just to start right from, start fresh and right from the beginning. So what Venerable Children adds to this is, she says, does the Dharma poke at your beliefs? And she advises us just to be curious and open-minded. To me, um, the, the next part of this chapter was kind of like, where is he going with this? He says, if you cultivate a broad outlook and a deeper view about the meaning of life, you will understand not only this life, but also the existence of many lives to come. And I was like, what is he talking about there? If you cultivate a broad outlook, which is the point of this chapter, and a deeper view of the meaning of life, a deeper view of the meaning of life, you will understand not only this life, but also the existence of many lives to come. For me, what I thought about, I was like, what is he talking about there? And I, what came to mind is he's talking about the Buddha's awakening under the Bodhi tree is what came to mind. There's this part here um, that I find quite Helpful. I'm really glad I've read this. It's, it comes up many times in the um, Pali Canon, probably other places too, but there's a couple paragraphs here that talk about the first and second watch of the night when the Buddha was becoming awake and he had like four stages. The first, And so I wanted just to read this. This is from the Middle-length Discourse number four. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to the knowledge of the recollection of past lives. I recollected my manifold past lives, that is, one birth, two births, three births, four births, five births, ten births, twenty births, thirty births, forty births, fifty births, a hundred births, a thousand births, a hundred thousand births, many eons of world contraction, many eons of world expansion, many eons of world contraction and expansion. This is the Buddha speaking, right? There I was so named of such a clan with such an appearance, such was my nutriment. Even knew what he ate. Huh. But might, might have been nutriment, I think it was more than food, though. Such was my experience of pleasure and pain. Such was my life term, how long he lived, and passing away from there. I reappeared elsewhere, and there, too, I was so named of such a clan with such an appearance. Such was my nutriment, such my experience of pleasure and pain, such my life term, and passing away there, and I reappeared here. Thus, with their aspects and particulars, I recollected my many... My manifold past lives. This was the first true knowledge attained by me in the first watch of the night. Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished and light arose. As happens in one who abides diligent, ardent, and resolute. That's the first one. The second one is, when my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to knowledge of the passing away and reappearance of beings. With the divine eye which is purified and surpasses the human, I saw beings passing away and reappearing. Inferior inferior and superior, fair and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate. I understood how beings pass on according to their actions thus. These worthy beings worthy beings he calls people who are ill-conducted in body speech and mind revilers of noble ones wrong in their views giving effect to wrong view in their actions on the dissolution of the body after death have reappeared in a state of deprivation of bad in a bad destination in perdition even in hell but these worthy beings who are well-conducted in body, speech, and mind, not revilers of noble ones, right in their views, giving effect to their right view in their actions on the dissolution of the body after death, have reappeared in a good destination, even in the heavenly world. Thus with the divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human eye, saw beings passing away and reappearing, inferior and superior, fair and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, and I understood how beings pass on according to their actions. This was the second true knowledge attained by me in the second watch of the night. Ignorance was banished, and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished, and light arose, as happens in one who abides diligent, ardent, and resolute. So I think Venerable children, hit the nail on the head when she was saying here he's emphasizing future lives. He, was, he doesn't mention future lives, but it's kind of like you're inferring that from this. He's pretty much laid out, why do we need to concern ourselves with future lives? We have to think about karma. Our past actions create our future. That's what he was seeing. He saw his past actions and how they created the next life and the next life. So in respect to one life, he saw his future in the next life. So you, we have to pay attention to what we've done in the past and purify. And then, in our present actions, we're creating the cause for the future. So with our past actions, we need to purify With our present actions, we need to think of what kind of future we want to have so we can create causes for what we want. So to me, I think that's what His Holiness was talking about. I really think he was pointing right to the Buddha's profound understanding that, and only, only a Buddha could know the particulars of karma, like he was seeing, and that's how he figured things out. And that that passage is repeated many times in the sutras. So we, through this kind of thinking, um, really helps us to, I think, put into uh, a better perspective of, of the fact that what we do matters. The Four Noble Truths work, um... Yes, there's there's a need to understand our suffering completely. Actually, I think the way the, um, it's laid out is quite clear. We have to know, fully identify, um, fully understand dukkha. That's our first task with the first noble truth. And then as this whole teaching is trying to help us understand is to learn how to create causes for future we have to the second main point with the four noble truths with the second truth is the origin of dukkha we have to abandon so by knowing what causes our suffering we then work to abandon it we understand fully that afflictions and karma just like what the buddha saw that when he became awakened under the bodhi tree and then the third noble truth tells us that cessation of dukkha is to be realized so that's the great, mm, I don't want to say hope, it's the great realization that cessation is possible and it's something we do in stages. It doesn't come all at once like I might have thought when I was younger, but whatever portion of the afflictions that we have a cessation of, those are gone permanently and then we just work our way from grosser to less gross to more, more subtle and more subtle afflictions, and then the latencies, the afflictions to reach nirvana and the latencies of those to become a Buddha. So those cessations of each portion are permanent. They don't come back because you've cut them from the root. And then, of course, the fourth noble truth, the path to cessation of dukkha is to be practiced. So I think that um, this chapter kind of covers a lot of ground but there's and I didn't cover many pages <laughs> because there's so much in it but I like to spend the time and I'm glad we did tonight to go into these different areas and think about them a little bit more I would encourage us to take just small sections of the book and and use them because I found like I could have done many more meditations out of this was four pages there's just a lot in here and if we spend the time with them um, for me, it's quite uh, clear, these teachings all tied together, that if I don't recognize the what the Buddha taught, say, about the six sufferings of psychic existence, or the eight sufferings of, say, the human realm, and I think all the dissatisfaction that I have, if I don't understand those teachings, if I don't really fully understand those, I will think that this is coming from outside of me, and I will blame somebody or something outside of myself, which is what we do. You know, we just do that so easily. And so I, although these teachings are sobering, I always find these to be the most important teachings for me. These are the ones that help me pull myself outside of myself when I'm stuck, actually, Because when we're stuck, when we're suffering, we're deluded. This is my short term of the Four Noble Truths. If I'm suffering, I'm deluded. And that recognition is that I don't need to be deluded. I'm suffering because I'm deluded, not because of the things outside of me or the causes. So it seems counterintuitive in a way. And, And I know we're taught, like, when you're depressed or whatever, don't think about death or don't think about these topics but i have to say usually when i'm struggling with these kind of things i do get some level of d- depression or mm, not despondency sometimes i don't know a lot of things can come up you know you're just suffering with these with these sufferings you know the uncertainty the loneliness things like that these are these are the six sufferings you know birth, aging, sickness, death, those was part of the eight, but the, in the six ones, things like if your mind feels lonely ever, you know, they talk about loneliness mostly in terms of being born and dying alone, but we actually live parts of our lives feeling lonely and alone. Oh, am I going to blame somebody for that or am I going to recognize that this is part and parcel of of the actions and the karma of, and the afflictions and the karma that have created this situation, or the uncertainty that we face in our lives. I think these two are the ones that really strike home for me. It's like, wow, you know, we always learn about how friends, enemies, and strangers change all the time. But it's happening to us even, you know, like day to day with the, the feelings of uncertainty that we have a lot of times is because our relationships with others aren't stable. You know, they they fluctuate. Because why? Because because we're all getting yanked around by the nose ring of these afflictions and then doing actions because of that. So all the time we're in and out with each other and, and people. So I can either, like, blame everybody around me, but I find it, yeah, it's, if it makes you feel worse and you can't get yourself out of it, then better meditate on precious human life. But for me, actually, this is what digs me out more than that. This, I don't know why, it's just like, I, it helps me to just see more clearly, like, I, I know what it is. I know how my mind works in this regard. My, when I'm stuck, or things aren't, yeah, things aren't going well in a certain way, I need to have my mind get wider. I have to have a much bigger view, and these teachings are what do that. It puts into the proper perspective my experience. So I'm not. It's like so narrow, like it's due to this or this or this. It ha- it forces me to take my mind and expand it, and that helps me to to move to move the mental states. So, okay, does anyone have any last things they want to share before we close?
0: I'll go back to the beginning a minute. Um, something that that we didn't mention about ethical conduct mm-hmm. is it's it's the basis for the path. Um, I have a couple sentences here from um, Yeshisopa. Sopa. He says, it's the training of wisdom that finally brings about the cessation of suffering. And in order to achieve that level of realization, we must focus the mind with the training of meditative stabilization. But we cannot attain either one of these goals without the firm foundation of ethical conduct. And actually, he says in another place, When you trust in the Dharma, you take certain vows to behave according to its ethical prescriptions. All of these precepts and rules are only for the purpose of leading you to enlightenment. There are no rules for any other reason than that.
1: Mm -hmm. That's good. Let's take a moment to um, meditate. Bring to mind something from this evening that you want to remember, and then we'll dedicate. So let's take the merit of our activity and dedicate it for the welfare of all beings. In particular, tonight I'm thinking about our spiritual mentors who have been so kind to teach us, and recently we were sent a little video about Thich Khan Hanh uh, moving back to Vietnam to his monastery where he ordained when he was 16, and he's now 92. So to dedicate for his uh, full awakening
0: to be able, and for his to continue to benefit beings.